0: So I, did you actually see the CNN coverage of Jack Smith uh, boldly, bravely walking out of a subway holding a sandwich?
1: I, d- I did, yeah. <laughs> uh, the,
0: I love that, you know, Evan Perez, justice correspondent, by which we mean, you know, someone literally at the end of the intestines of the DOJ who just, like, <laughs> spews out whatever they tell him to uh, on a daily basis. It's presented as this, like, you know oh you you were in the right place in the right time you know and clearly he was trying to send a message uh but my favorite part was that uh apparently John King and Dana Bash have not darkened the halls of a subway in quite a long time because they still believe the five dollar foot long is a thing and that's I mean you know if if you are uh if I believe if if you are uh, 2015 if you were born in 2015 or or later you have never lived in a world with a five dollar foot long it does not well, is,
1: is it any surprise that CNN is ignoring Biden inflation
0: <laughs> well I mean it's not just by inflation you know the funny thing about this is uh I, I, for for a second there a brief second I was like is this some kind of marketing ploy like why why are they making such a big deal about him you know walking out of a uh you know a subway store uh, but then I realized if it was a marketing ploy, he would have been walking out of a Quiznos because uh, I, I have news for for you all in case you were not on top of this uh, incredible cultural cultural phenomenon. Uh, headline from Eater, fast food's most unhinged mascots are back. This is from yesterday, July 18th. The Spong Monkeys, a pair of potato-shaped, human-toothed, rodent fish critters. Once the faces of Quiznos, now the sandwich chain is plotting a comeback, and the Spong monkeys are once again loving their subs. Do you remember this the Eat No subs,
1: monkeys. The, the, they they sang that song. Th- those, yes. those are monkeys. I mean, I I said monkeys for the first time in my life to describe them. I had no idea what those.
0: They are called the Spong monkeys, are. and uh, and they were the they're like part of that whole like weird comedy bit sort of stuff that was viral at the time, and then they were used in that. Quizno's ad singing we love the subs.
1: Yeah, kind of like early. I mean, that was definitely a moment in time. It's also that kind of thing is back in vogue a little bit with with uh Tim Robinson and and um, you know, yes. stuff like that. Like but but yeah, that was a early YouTube kind of uh I, what what you do, you do you have the years that that originally 2000, red?
0: 2004, 2005. Yeah, right.
1: exactly. So, yeah, so that's, I remember those guys. The,
0: um the
1: the other weird connection
0: with this. I follow this guy on Twitter, Ben Crew. He's Benjamin at Benjamin Crew One. And he has this like running bit that he's done about how they need to have one more episode of Mad Men where a 78 year old Don Draper comes back to pitch this Quiznos Spong Monkeys. <laughs> 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 and he took this bit so far that uh I will just uh I will read you the the headline um uh, the, uh, from from a site that I had forgotten uh, ex- uh, existed, E-Bombs World oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, cr- uh, Crazy Man uh, goes viral with 40 page script of Mad Men Returns with Don
1: Draper pitching the spawn monkeys <laughs> and
0: it really that's, is like it's a fully written script
1: <laughs> that's a fun party game is like what is Don Draper's last big product this sounds
2: gone. like this. Hey, this sounds like a great thing for uh, Watch What Happens Live. Bring in John <laughs> Hamm to to do the read. Yes, <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely. That's Let's make it happen.
1: Good. That's a great idea.
0: That's fantastic. But I, I think probably the reason that he connected them mentally is because uh just like Lucky Strikes, they're toasted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's funny. That's fun. I was gonna go with that's that's better than mine. I was gonna go with like I think Geico Caveman, you know, might be a good one a good swan song yeah, for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Gilbert Gottfried for aflac maybe. <laughs> Um, there's, there's know, so with Gilbert. He'll never
0: get us in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: America loves this guy. The aristocrats. Um, I, I mean, I feel yeah, like so. The, this, well, uh, I I do have a substantive point would I be think, a great one to too. make about the CNN thing, which is, you know, every once in a while you get a perfect distillation reminder of what launched cable news, and you know, a, a really d- simplified version of that is Clinton impeachment plus. 2000 election, right? Mm-hmm. And what those things have in common is that you've got, con- you've got daily content for weeks, right? You've got this like ticking, ticking bomb content that's going on for weeks. It's almost like the the Olympics of politics, uh, in in both cases. And you've got to fill the time. And it's interesting. What you know, uh, CNN used to fill the time by. It's going to sound strange, having a global network of fearless journalists covering uh obscure but important happenings in parts of the world that most Americans don't think about. Oh, boy. That's, how they, that's that that used to be their their model. Um, and then they got these like low-hanging fruit juicy domestic political stories like I said with with the election of 2000 and the recount and with the impeachment where you had you know you had to fill every day and there was stuff happening but there wasn't 24 hours of stuff happening. So you had to cultivate this network of of uh analysts and commentators who could turn the most banal and non newsy tidbit into 25 minutes of on-air commentary and every once in a while you still see the dna the sort of proto mm-hmm. you know the the evidence of the, of how the current cable news model has evolved especially daytime right um you know in in something like this where we're talking about jack smith you know passed up on the free guacamole at chipotle (laughs) it's a sign that he's serious that trump's getting serious about the border i don't know you know like it's just completely inane um but i think that's the root of it
0: uh john what was your five dollar foot long order back in the day i was a spicy italian man yeah yeah good good i
2: mean you can't what else what else would you do
0: solid very very solid the uh uh those those were the days that you know you could you could uh uh, I had an onion in my belt. This was the style at the time. So gentlemen, this is Thunderdome and we have plenty of things to talk about this week. Uh, but I think uh, since we've already exhausted the, uh, the the symbolism, the deep symbolism of uh, a Subway sandwich, uh, we should move to something uh, less serious that uh, CNN did, which was actually sit down with Ron DeSantis for a lengthy Jake Tapper-led uh, interview. Uh, I don't know if you had the chance to Watch all of it. Um, There's a Jack Schaefer column about it that's out at Politico this morning and basically making the point that DeSantis didn't uh, pivot in any way. He just sort of was his same person uh, just on CNN instead of uh, being on Fox or something like that. I don't think that's exactly true because I think that this DeSantis uh, sort of building off of what he did when he was uh, talking to Howie Kurtz just this past weekend he got a little more meta about his theory of the race and how he thinks things are going to play out, you know, particularly talking about South Carolina uh, and the like. Um, And that to me was of interest. Uh, Did either of you have takeaways for, for DeSantis's performance pro or con? I think it was just good that he stepped outside
2: of the conservative media bubble. Uh, I think I've said probably any number of weeks on here, politics is a game of addition and not of subtraction or narrowing. So, trying to expand his audience, and I don't know how many Republicans are regularly watching c n n unless they are paid to uh it's it, he needs more reps dealing with media that's not going to always be friendly to him. and this is a good way to start doing that so to to that end, and you know if he's walking out of there and it, everyone feels at least okay about it, I'd say that was mission accomplished for him, yeah, and there's got i mean
1: this is this is kind of a meta point, but there's there's a case that he has to. Um, you, you don't. You don't, certainly don't want to shape your entire campaign around what the mainstream media is saying about you. But there's a weird little dynamic happening here that I think calls for, as a PR response, sort of engaging the mainstream media more. Which is that he's being covered like he's flailing, right? He's being covered like there's blood in the water, and he's the crash and burn, disappointment, failure to launch, struggling. You know, the you know his 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 nose is open in the fight. And the mainstream press, that's a ready made storyline. It's easy. the stories write themselves. You know, it's a great uh, it's a great punching bag for Trump. You can cue him up and all of his proxies up to to beat up DeSantis even more. And one of the things the press is saying is that, you know, he refuses to get outside of his bubble. and you know he's he sticks with friendly, you know, uh, conservative media, and, you know, especially inside Florida. he's he's particularly narrow casting there Mm. um so there is an argument for engaging on that msm uh critique for kind of tactical or indirect reasons which is that you need you need to change that storyline a little or give the mainstream press something else to say about you and one easy way to do that is access right access is the oldest trick in the politician playbook right um Mm -hmm. in terms of you know handling the press so it's not like it's it's a little bit like a tourniquet right like it's not what you don't want to be in a position (laughs) where you're using a tourniquet right but um it's it's so it's not an ideal strategy but uh i think there is a kind of um bank shot 3d chess argument for doing it to just get off of that narrative a little bit because it's so easy and also like you know uh plays into trump's hands in the sense that you know um, he is great at as you know he it's impossible to to lay to lay gloves on him but as soon as anybody shows just a tiny little bit of blood um, he is uh, you know like a like a, a great white shark using its you know elect- okay. a special electrical s- seven cents to um, find that find that and uh, exploit it so
0: you know one other thing that uh, sticks out to me <clears throat> about kind of the way that that DeSantis is covered. And you mentioned kind of the Florida thing. There's always this thing that happens when there's like a really popular politician from a particular state who's trying to export nationally, where the different journalists who have uh, uh, either access or have relationships within that world, even if they're hostile relationships, they're just used to covering the guy they their own ambitions become uh, very easily tracked conflicts because they actually want that person to succeed. Um, and the reason is that if that person succeeds, then they're the person who gets approached to write the book about them uh, by the mainstream media or, to you know, gets a contract with NBC to offer commentary on them, you know, all the way uh, to, uh, you know, potentially, you know, through the election and that kind of thing. And so their ambitions become, you know, sort of they they kind of try to they they sort of treat them a little bit more with kid gloves. Uh, and I certainly have seen this in multiple cycles because it's like, well hey, if he actually makes it, then I'm gonna have access for a year. um and I actually think that that was one of the motivating factors of a number of the different journalists uh, covering Trump. Uh, it was certainly it's certainly been something that we've seen before uh, when it comes to sort of these exports uh, that have previous you know media relationships. and I think that there's a bit of that uh, that's going on. Two, when it comes to DeSantis, uh, in part, you know, just one example of this would be that Mark Caputo got this, you know, big DeSantis campaign sort of playbook piece uh, that uh, that he wrote for the Messenger um, uh, just uh, late last week on how they kind of are plotting their comeback and that kind of thing. Um, so, anyway, just uh, something to watch. The one, the one other thing I would just add to this is that there was a funny moment where tapper you know sort of in this interview two two funny moments one is tapper in the interview uh sort of pushes it back against the idea that a woke military is one of the reasons that uh, they've struggled with recruitment um and he made reference to something that he kind of presented as being like behind the scenes you know documents he's like this is not public but you know i can show it to you and he sort of hands a document and desantis uh, to his credit, does not accept it <laughs> to to look at and read, um, which I, I think uh, just, you know, the, the natural tendency is to do that in that scenario. By the way, that document is actually several years old. It's it's widely uh, known about. It's a survey of 600 people that was done in, back in like 2021 where wokeness was lower down uh, on the list. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the thing that is kind of left out of what Tapper says about why people don't join the military is that like one out of 10 uh, people, you know, on a on a list where you know very few things were in double digits, um, uh, were were expressing just distrust generally in a military leadership. I wonder what that number would be right now if you uh, if you ran it again in terms of the military present uh, uh, population in America. And then the other interesting moment I just thought was when, uh, Desantis made reference to a poll that was released by CNN right before CNN hosted a debate. Uh, for him running for Florida governor that showed him some exorbitant amount down like 14 points. And Tapper, Tapper said, yeah, you know, for the record, I didn't believe that poll at the time. (laughs) And it's, it's funny because networks, everybody knows this, if they work in this, but networks often, you know, they, the, the polls are done by people who don't actually work for the network. They commission them and different people at different networks have different levels of faith and trust in the pollsters that are used. Um, And so there's several, you know, examples. And I would say that this is, you know, uh, if if you want an example from the network I now work at, there was a poll done in Indiana in the Senate uh, right uh, before uh, the the midterm that saw uh, uh, that had uh, Mike Braun down some huge amount to his Democrat opponent. Obviously, Braun won easily. Uh, and that poll is still kind of cited as a point where I believe afterwards they changed pulsers. So it happens occasionally uh, that you have to deal with situations like that. Just two little things. Um, anything else on this or should we move you on? Know, I, to... I would Go just ahead. say
1: on the, so the polling thing, you know, uh, polling, I think, you know, it's not, not new to say polling is, doesn't work as well as it used to for a thousand different reasons. They're, I think probably the two most salient are obviously just the way people communicate you know, the, the the death of the landline, poll, you know, poll respondent, and the changing of, you know, who answers polls and why, and then also just strategic answers. Um, there's such a high level of distrust, and there are so many unsayable things in American politics right now, um, that, that you know, the, 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 that you get a lot of strategic, you know, beyond shy Tory. I mean, it, it's, there's layers on layers of that. I'm convinced of it. I think, I mean, there's 10 other reasons. We, we both have friends who know you know, more, you know, forgotten more about this than I'll ever know. So, um, you know, I won't get too far into that one. But you can say this, you can say that, you know, the, the, the even that 14 point poll in Florida was an outlier. I mean, he was consistently polling, what, like one to four points. He was polling within the margin of error behind Gillum for most of that race yeah. um yeah. and you know he obviously won and you know it was and, and it was cited as a, as a reason to distrust polling but you know I, I i just and i don't think he is but i would just I, I would say ron don't think that that's happening now i mean what you know a poll that's within the you know a bunch of polls that are within the margin of error um you know you, you might say oh you know the polling's not capturing our, our momentum or or the strength of our base or whatever it is um but or late breaking undecideds, blah, blah, blah. But when you're down, you know, 15 to 20 points in lots of different places consistently, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the real thing.
2: I think that when it comes to polling, I think Nate Silver has been really good in explaining this. And I know there are some people on the right that, excuse me, take issue with, you know, say his model or what have you. But, and I think that the, the the 16 presidential race was really illustrative of, of this. And I, fell into the same trap as a lot of people where when they were projecting that, you know, Hillary had a 75% chance of winning based on the polling method, you know, the polling model and Trump had 25%, it seems like she's the overwhelming favorite. Right. So, but in in fact, what it was is it's, it's the probability of something happening. So when you're talking about 25%, yeah, she was, I guess, three times more likely to happen, but 25% in that instance is, you know, flipping a coin twice and calling heads both times and it coming up heads both times. That's not a wild thing to happen in nature. So, I mean, if you want to look at the, you know, what the, the Florida polling was in the, the Gillum race, if it had him down a point, the polls were pretty much correct then if it was okay. within inside the margin of error. And American politics has been nothing but in the last 20 years, you know, certainly in the the era that the three of us have been active participants in it has been largely a margin of error races in a lot of cases. I mean, Rick Scott went to extra innings uh, in that cycle too, in defeating uh, then, you know, unassailable, you know, sort of senior Senator uh, Bill Nelson. So, but I think when you're looking at, say, the, the primary polling right now, where it is in mostly national polling, and again, there's no such thing as a national primary. It's on a state by state basis. But when you have Trump consistently in, you know, that's somewhere between fifty and fifty-five percent range, and DeSantis, I guess, is sort of hovered between twenty percent and thirty uh, percent. I guess the low thirties maybe was his high water mark at the beginning of this year, uh, but I think it is sort of suggestive of where things are. But it's it's not static, and uh, a few months is a is a lifetime in politics. I went back and looked earlier at, at polling in two thousand eight uh, on the Democratic side, and at at, you know, at least sort of in 2007, in the the run up to the the actual election year, there were points where Hillary Clinton was at 48.5 percent and Barack Obama was at 21.2 percent. Mm-hmm. In a much more consolidated field, where you had John Edwards out there, uh, Bill Richardson, last from the past, uh, and our very own President Joe Biden, uh, who I'd actually forgot had run in the 2008 cycle as well. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Things can change. I think what's unique here again is this is the first time since the end of the 20th century, or sorry, the end of the 19th century, where you have a former president running again. As you know, in this case, the primitive favorite media environment is is obviously very different. But uh, pooling is pooling is a is a tool, but it is not a uh, necessarily a, a crystal ball. I think mm-hmm. is the best way to put it.
1: You know that Biden what? thing is is interesting though, just because I'm trying to remember, but wasn't it his old plagiarism stuff and that that knocked him out of the race in 2008? Was that was, eight. no, no, that no, was actually no, that, 88.
0: That was 88. <laughs> so, so what?
1: So what happened in 2000? Because I'm just, I, I mean, the, the the evolution of the. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but like the the scandal inflation. Because I just think about the kind of stuff that made joe biden unelectable for 40 years it was his only go- his only goal was to be president of the united states just made him unelectable for 30 years and you know then he wins as the return to normalcy inoffensive vanilla bland guy i mean it just tells you a lot about you know what the, how the world shifted around him
0: you know uh so i want to cite a poll uh that just that did come out uh from uh ran ran from the 13th through the 17th uh from uh unh and it shows uh trump 37 desantis 23 which is uh, a lower number for trump than he's had in in like saint anselm uh but uh you know uh, trump 37 desantis 23 uh Christie at six uh scott at eight so making up a little ground there Haley at five Bergum at six ramaswamy at five pence at one uh, and will heard at one uh this is a key poll for a couple of reasons. you know, number one definitely shows Pence kind of just falling apart and you know given the fundraising number that came in after we had talked um and in in fact on the same day as his uh a week performance in the in the Iowa conversation with Tucker Carlson um you know it, it really does look to me like Pence might not make that first debate, uh, which seems just, sort of shocking on his face that a former vice president wouldn't be able to do that. But it, it looks like, you know, while he would qualify in terms of the polling side, that he has still has a lot of ground to make up when it comes to getting to that 40,000 donor number. Clearly he could do things to get to that number, but they would probably be the same kind of embarrassing things uh, that Burgum has done in terms of giving people 20 bucks for, for a dollar um, that kind of thing. Uh, so you know essentially buying their, buying them as a donor um, and I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Miami Mayor uh, Suarez uh, is 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 literally asking people to Venmo him uh, to get take part in a uh, in, a, in a, a raffle, I guess for tickets to Lionel Messi's premiere uh, in in Miami soccer. So anyway, uh, which I'm not sure how that's legal because I'm I'm not sure you can check the Venmo people uh, that they're actually U.S. citizens and the like. But anyway. The Venmo um,
2: has real a Nigerian prince wants you to help get $10 million out of, you know, his (laughs) war-torn land vibes. Yes, Uh,
0: definitely, definitely. Um, But Bergam has said, he said on Hugh Hewitt this week uh, that he will make the debate. Um, and it's very possible that he will if he uh, if he continues to sort of he's if he's registering at, you know, one percent in a couple of other state polls and uh, and registering as high as, uh, you know, he's been at he's been at six, three and two in the last uh, three polls from New Hampshire. So it's just going to be very weird that he ends up on a debate stage and Mike Pence doesn't. Yeah. And the
1: other the other thing I think about, too, is, you know, Pence is such a we talked a lot about how Pence is from a different generation of politicians and he's an institutionalist and he's a old school Republican um, you know sort of before the party became you know personality cult and so the question to me is like well who does he endorse I mean I know I'm thinking around the corner and five steps ahead but it's like it's not obvious that he endorses DeSantis right like because you know DeSantis is not a conventional Republican he doesn't have a relationship with Pence he doesn't represent many of the same things that that Pence does. So that's an interesting wild card. Like, if you do get, like, an early Pence exit, where his endorsement could actually change early state outcomes, you know, at the margins, that's, you know, an interesting wild card. And the Bergen stuff, I mean, you know, it it was a good experiment, I think, for Republicans to try and um, manage the early debate environment in the way that they did, but it just shows you, like, you really have to be thoughtful about this stuff. Institutions... And the way they're built, um, you know, it's a lesson in conservatism, really. They're they're trying to they're trying to rebuild a party and remake a meet, you know, remake a media environment around the way that primaries are covered and the way they're conducted. Um, you know, in 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 the middle of things, they're trying to you know build the plane while they're flying it, and you know the the Bergam Ramaswamy trick there, you know, is just one little example of how the best laid plans for doing something like that central planning, right? Um, can be exploited and end up with massive unintended consequences and giving you um, outcomes that, you know, you weren't expecting. Um, And it's a, it's a serious problem long-term I think, you know, managing primaries and rebuilding um, party infrastructure and the, and who, who, who decides, right. Essentially. Um, uh, And this is an example of how that ain't, that ain't easy.
2: So Uh, I I want to dig into this a little bit because I don't know that I think it is embarrassing or that it's necessarily problematic. You know, we're not having sort of the, you know, the, uh, the perennial gadfly candidates. Uh, I can't remember. I just saw it the other day, but the guy in New Hampshire that wears the boot on his head,
0: uh, (laughs) vermin Vermin supreme,
2: Supreme, vermin supreme. Uh, It's not like he's going out there and is able to get 40,000 donors through some sort of novel approach. And if he did, I'd, I mean, maybe New Hampshire he can get one percent to to qualify for the stage, but is it? And I think that I think that Bergman made this point to Hugh Hewitt was, is it really any different than paying some fundraising firm to go out and drop direct mail or buy online ads or or any of those kind of things?
1: You're cutting out the middleman, right? Yeah, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, and at that point, look, it was it was one of the best weeks of his his campaign. And I, look, I don't think that Doug Bergman, Bergman is going to. Is going to be the the nominee doug but it's, bergman, it's,
0: it's doug bergman definitely isn't unless unless there's a different <laughs> well we got
2: we, we got a four, congressman jack bergham
0: in uh
2: bergman, bergman in, 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 in michigan. michigan
0: uh
2: but but no look you have a guy that's a, a governor of a state who's got an interesting story that's willing to dump a million dollars into it which it was still kind of wild to me you would think that having to do twenty dollars for over forty thousand voters would be more but it, really kind of was just that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's buying a lottery. I think I said before it's buying a lottery ticket. And if if this was a consolidated field where there was maybe going to be five people on that stage, because we've, we've seen this before in politics where you've got the main two people just absolutely beat the crap out of each other. And if you come up, you can run up through the middle as just being, you know, credible, sane, positive. We've seen this in a number of years ago in a South Dakota Senate race. We've seen this in the Tennessee governor's race, a guy like Bergam in that kind of world, you know, maybe he could catch fire. Now, I think somebody like Tim Scott is much better positioned to be that that third guy that is drafting off of DeSantis or, to an extent, Christie. In as much as Scott can stay positive and let Christy and DeSantis do some damage, so I'm curious what you guys think because I, I just don't take it as negatively as you all do. I I, think I, the I, other... don't,
0: I I wouldn't say it's a negative. I I mean I don't think you know there were so many. <laughs> the impression you know that we had back in 2016 uh was that this was a bunch of world beaters like that that this you know stage has like six guys on it who could conceivably be president you know uh, just in terms of the different you know people there who uh, were very ambitious and all seemed to be part of this sort of this new wave and it wasn't and that wasn't what happened you know so i think you know people and that happened in part you Know, big reason that that didn't happen is that there was someone like Ben Carson on the stage, uh, who ate up a ton of that energy early on and then you know gradually fell off, uh, but didn't fall off fast enough for someone like Cruz to make a case to his voters. And, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, you had Jeb just spending all of his money to mu- nuke Mar- Marco, so it's like one of these things where you know it, it, just things did not play out as expected. Yeah. Who's to say, who's to say that some guy who you know made his money you know with a with a tech company and and has you know presumably a record that he wants to talk about i mean you know he one thing that you have happen in a lot of you know areas like this is that someone who has a little bit more of that outsider cred um you know can can go places uh just in, in part by dint of being a new face and a new name vivek is part of that uh in terms of in terms of his appeal um and you know the the one thing that burgum does is I mean, he's this is not a new line, you know, obviously it's something that he's he's poached, but he does use, uh, you know, about the fact that, you know, he grew up, you know, working like the one thing I knew about him is that he had been a chimney sweep like back in back in the day. Um, And, you know, he pulls that line about, you know, uh, wanting to have leadership where you shower at the end of the day and not at the beginning um, and knows what that's like. And that's something that, you know, is not, there's not a lot of that in this field. And I think that he can, uh, he could maybe have a little bit of appeal on that basis.
1: Doesn't every politician need a shower at the end of the day?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Their souls, certainly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, well, no, the only thing I would say, the only thing I would say is, and, and this is a boring point, I think both your points are very well taken. But what I mean is, you know, a quote, I believe it's Yuval Levin again, which is, it's very hard in politics to do something on purpose, right? Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think there's, that's like a defining, you know, it's like a defining conservative quote, honestly, is that and I'm just talking about unintended consequences. So it, it did we get a happy accident, maybe where a guy like Burgum, who we kind of agreed from day one, even as we joked about him, is at least a serious and interesting guy. Um, is it, you know, it's a happy accident, sure, but it wasn't the intention of putting these debate qualification restrictions in place and i'm just pointing out that you know if you're going to try and make, repair the primary process which i think is broken and if you're going to try and make the republican party a serious nationally contending 51% party um which i think you know th- big changes are needed then then this is an example of just how hard it is to do because yep. you write these new rules and they get gamed
0: again again i would just and i would just point out my preference is let a th- like a, le- a thousand places invite people to come debate. They could invite some people, they can invite all the people, they could invite just two people, you know, they can do it. Um, And, you know, and even make the politicians campaigns themselves if you want to fund the debate. I mean, that's what happened. The infamous, you know, Reagan, I'm paying for this microphone moment happened because Reagan literally was paying for that debate to happen. And that's uh, you know something I think is just this top-down approach to debates is just something I'm very very tired of. But we, I I
2: know we probably want to move on, but I I have to make one last point on this. Dan, is I think in some ways these thresholds that they have, which I think seem at least in isolation reasonable, that you want to have some sort of base threshold of of donor support and the ability to get into the polls, but if it lets, especially as as politics has become more entertainment-driven and where like it or not, the media is a is, is a filter of who's up and who's down and who gets attention and who you know their name. And you know, there were tons of studies in 2016 about the basically the free ad buy that the media was giving Donald Trump for months and months and months to give somebody like uh, Doug Burgum a chance to yeah buy his way onto the stage. How many people are capable and willing to do that and can still pull? Look, maybe you want to make the threshold or 3% uh, in in the polling threshold to really weed out the pure sort of gadflies that can throw some cash at it. But it lets more, it's funny now that we're talking about a sitting governor as a non-traditional candidate, but (laughs) that it lets lets a a non-traditional candidate in the current 2024 context onto the stage. And Mm -hmm. maybe he does it once or twice and maybe that's the end of it. And maybe somebody like that catches fire, but it does let somebody, you have to show up to the world series of poker with, you know, with the check to get your chip stack. And he's said, here I am, you know, handing back over.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I, I, the point is taken and I still do kind of, I am curious, you know, what if Carrie Lake was in this race, you know, where would she be at, you know, because I definitely think she'd be at enough to make the debate stage. So <laughs> anyway, um, let's uh let's talk a little bit not not a lot but a little bit about this uh trump hannity town hall it was branded as a town hall but it really was it was more of just like an interview uh in front of people um in cedar rapids a couple of things to come out, out of it uh the, you know obviously the thing that kind of went viral was him being complimentary of she which is not particularly new but just reminds people that's the way he talks about dictators and it's uh and it's not cool um but the i think the real takeaway is uh him being out of step with where the party is going uh, on the whole mail-in balloting question. Uh, the the number one thing that I hear from audiences uh, when you know when, whenever I'm done speaking, the the number one thing that I hear from questioners who bring up uh, the midterm elections is, regardless of whether they think that certain things were rigged or not, they really don't say it that way. What they actually say is, uh, you know, the we need to we need to play the game according to the rules that they have. You know, like we, I we, I hate the rules. I hate mail-in balloting. You know, I think it's corrupt. I think it's bad. But we've got to we've got to fight that battle too. Like, there's definitely an awareness post midterm that just being mad about the way that the rules are and having to slug everything out on election day uh, isn't going to work for Republicans and that they need to develop their own kind of ballot harvesting system. And you've seen a lot of, of uh, organizations that are Trump friendly go in that same direction too, putting out there that like uh, we're going to be, I mean uh, turning point USA just this past week, you know, did a big announcement about like, we're going to be, you know, leading the way on this kind of front and da, da, da. Um, Trump himself though, doesn't seem to take that message. He seems to once again, be, You know, uh, very skeptical of of the idea that you know uh, mail-in balloting is something uh, that Republicans should be competing on. Hannity was sort of pressing him uh, on uh, supporting that type of approach, Uh, and uh, Trump was still you know having none of it. um, Really saying that you know he believes that you know it's just like a tool of the Democrats to cheat. What do we what do we think about that?
1: I think I think what it shows you is that all Trump knows about about mail in balloting or the mo- the only salient thing he knows about mail in balloting is that he overperforms on same day votes right That's all he needs to know about it is that he does better on on election day in person votes and so in his mind when he's watching the big map turn red or blue in 2016 and 2020 when they're counting mostly same day votes, Trump's smiley trump's ha- trump happy. When they when the mail-in ballots start getting counted, Trump sad, Trump frowned. right? So I think that's the the short lesson. I mean, on the on the substantive point, yeah, I think you know I'm a big uh, I'm a big opponent of early voting. I say vote vote you know once on election day, not early and often, right? Um, not not my my concern isn't primarily about fraud. I mean, the, there are those concerns around the margin, nor is it even just around the fact that the Democrats are better so far at organizing ballot harvesting and things like that it's really just about the nature of it as a civic ritual an election day it's not election month i mean we don't it, it you know at a certain point you bleed you bleed over from early voting to just like almost like a rolling you know plebiscite or a rolling poll on the performance of the incumbent versus the challenger in office and i just don't think that's healthy civically doesn't make any sense an election is an event it's not a you know it's not a a, a barometer that you 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 know you you, you depending on what side of the bed you woke up on and when you decide to mail in your ballot, it could affect who you vote for. So, I mean, I've I've, I've always been an opponent of it, but I also think that just facts being facts, the Republican party has a kind of um, obligation to its own kind of Darwinian obligation to get better at it. And to, as you said, play by the rules of the game as they are. And even if you're a committed opponent of it, well, the only way you're going to get rid of it is if you make it a net, either a net positive, for um, Republicans, like if Republicans just wipe out the, the Democratic advantage there, then the whole incentives around it will, will change or you make it, you know, you neutralize it. Um, so even someone like me who, do, who doesn't like it uh, for reasons very different from Trump, um, you know, I still think, the, the, you know, the Republican party has an obligation to get better at it. And, you know, that's the only way, if there is some hope of getting rid of it in the future, that's the only way to do it.
2: I think we need to separate uh, early va- early voting and I think I'd share a lot of your concerns there Dan I, I you know both uh with mail-in voting especially if the mail-in voting is happening within seven to ten days of of election day people have kids there are people that have health issues and I know a lot of particularly on the health side that there have always been ballot access laws that are generally allowed for that but I don't think it's the end of the world there's been states that have had all vote by mail i believe washington state washington oregon has been one of them i think colorado's moved that way and there's no indication that it's led to fraudulent outcomes with the but with all of this and how the republican party has talked about it it's loser talk it's like saying that well i think field goals were more noble so even though i kicked three of those And well, you scored two touchdowns and one, and that's not fair. Those are those are the rules of the game, and you have to play within them. And to say that that they're not something that we can compete under is just patently ridiculous. When George W. Bush ran in 2000 and 2004, Republicans were killing Democrats on banking votes before election day. It's it's a sale you don't need to make same day. It's easier if you've got your 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 call sheet of reliable Republican voters. And you can take a third of them off that sheet, so you can call people twice now because you already know one third of those voters are in the bag and their ballots are already in there. Why wouldn't you want to do that? It lets you focus your resources this is a this is this ends up being this sort of stupid moralistic argument that is so divorced from wanting to win elections what what's what's unethical or unnoble about voting in those different ways? <clears throat> Again, completely sensitive to, to concerns of fraud. But again, we're, we're circling around on this issue. The reason we're talking about fraud and elections in a meaningful way is because Donald Trump convinced a bunch of people with absolutely insane theories that he won and is the rightful president of the United States. If they had been that concerned about these kind of uh, ballot access issues, and in fairness, there were real issues around what some states, and particularly courts or governors, were doing in 2020 around COVID that did not really have legislative oversight, and it was Wild West. But where was the Trump campaign or the RNC or anyone filing lawsuits that summer? It was all after the fact. Yeah. So look, winners win with the rules that are on the field. When you're going to play an away game at Duke, you're going to have to expect that while well, their guys are going to try to trip you and the refs aren't going to be paying attention on some stuff, you just got to go out there and put more points on the, on the, back, you know, points on the board and, you know, to, 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 to go back to, you know, since we've talked about Hugh Hewitt already, go back to one of his books, you know, if it's not close, they can't cheat. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that Republicans need to focus on winning and not on recriminations of fighting the last four.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think I think we can uh, agree largely on that you know it does it just it, to me it's it smacks more of um you know complaining about you know the wildcat offense or something like that you know like it, it, someone's come up with a new wrinkle I don't like that that wrinkle is is uh, being used to beat me uh, it seems you know sort of sketchy uh, but it, it is you know allowed under the rules I think in the situations that you were making reference to uh, a big part of the frustration is that I think people were kind of disengaged and they didn't realize how significant those changes uh, would be in terms of making it so easy to do things uh, on the Democratic side that they have already had the mechanisms to take advantage of. Um, and I think that that's something that now that they've gone through not just one, but two cycles of this, uh, you know, it's clearly time for Republicans to catch up. They ha- I think there's you know efforts being made to do so. Uh, and that could be you know, could make a big, big difference uh, this time around. But one uh, thing that I uh, from another candidate that I wanted to touch on was, you know, we've seen, you know, along with the, the extremely depressing uh, uh, Pence uh, financial report, uh, we saw s- sort of some very mostly equivalent uh, reports from Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, though uh, Scott has more in terms of Super PAC money, and that is going to be going out uh, in a significant way in terms of ad reservations. the the the, the Super PAC has announced they're going to drop, for, they're planning to drop forty million in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Um, and one of the things that uh, uh, DeSantis made reference to in his interview with Tapper was how big of a deal South Carolina really was. Uh, or was going to be because of the new schedule, which basically gives you almost three weeks where it's nothing but South Carolina um, that is, that is coming up. And it it really kind of crystallized for me, you know, DeSantis really needs to get one of these two people out of the race. He really needs to get either Scott or Haley. And it seems like Haley on the face of it would seem to be easier uh, to get out beforehand, Uh, but maybe not. Uh, and it, it, in a situation where he's got both of them on the ballot in South Carolina, that I think really hurts him because I think that those tr- those are truly voters who are not going to choose Trump as their second or maybe even third choice um, and uh, and are much more likely to choose him. So it, it just seems to me that, like, if if there's some staying power to those two campaigns Uh, then that hurts him in South Carolina and South Carolina really could determine if you have any kind of momentum going into Florida, which is obviously winner take all Uh, any disagreement on that point. And what do you think about Scott's uh, chances just in terms of, you know, we've talked about him as being kind of a a little out of touch. I thought that his uh, going first in the Tucker conversation hurt him uh, in part because the event was kind of I don't know if it was disorganized or if there was some kind of expectation that people were going to give a speech and then talk to Tucker, but he kind of came out clumsily and, and, uh, and I don't know, it just, the, the whole kind of Southern preacher thing that he's doing is just not for me. Um, even though he's from my, literally the neighborhood that I grew up in, I just don't, I don't have a lot of, uh, love for, for either of these candidates uh, But I'm just curious as to your thoughts on how much their presence in the field or, or lack thereof, could determine the outcome in South Carolina.
2: I think that's right, Ben. By and large, that if they're both in there, but it's a problem that Ron DeSantis can, to some degree, solve for himself. If he wins Iowa and places close second, say in New Hampshire, then I think the entire dynamics of the race change for. I mean, the, he has established himself then as the the not-Trump candidate in that field. Now, maybe you know, Haley and Scott want to stay in, and uh, I, I would advise them in that case to get out, because I don't think you want to have a, you know, no one wants to lose their home state. And again, they're cannibalizing each other, too, in that instance. But I think, and I I've said it before, I think Tim Scott is the guy that is a general election candidate, is the single best one in this field, and I'm not sure it's even terribly close. Uh, I think he is able to articulate a message that is, by and large, pretty close to where Republican voters are now. I think he is more conservative or probably more base aligned than a lot of the 16 crowd or in, in prior cycles. But I think he's a guy that can reach into suburban communities I mean, is there any question that Tim Scott wins Georgia? You know, is there any question that uh, he can pull some of those other states back onto the map? I don't think so. I think he's also run, at least so far as I see it, and I, and I didn't see the Tucker thing. And, you know, I think for a lot of this cycle, um, you know, I'm viewing this through the eyes of probably almost a more normie, normal voter, uh, you know, certainly somebody who spent my life in politics, but it just, you know. Life is busy and it's hard to to watch all of these things. So sure, maybe the Tucker thing matters for the people that pay are paying really close attention to that. But hey, guess what? My vote counts the exact same as theirs that is watching all of it. Sure. and just and-
0: uh, just to summarize, so uh, I because I did watch all of it, but um, uh, Byron York and I had a, essentially the exact same analysis of who came out looking good and who came out looking average or poor. Mm-hmm. um and and that was that that uh, hutchinson was essentially murdered on stage uh uh and uh and haley came off surprisingly well uh and uh pence did poorly uh scott was basically average uh vivek was himself uh, and so it didn't really you know it doesn't give you an actual boost to basically just be the same guy that you're on tv um and that desantis hit all of his marks and You know, didn't didn't have any errors or anything like that. The really surprising takeaway from from my perspective was that, you know, Tucker was basically asking everyone a foreign policy Ukraine focused question. You know, this came right after the news of of, you know, sending some uh, calling up, you know, some some troops, American troops to be uh, sent into Europe, Um, not to Ukraine, obviously, but just, uh, you know, to uh, essentially backing up our forces. And so he was using that as a hook to ask everybody except for Nikki Haley which was so weird uh because I would have expected her to get the the worst of it. Um but I but I hear what you're saying. It it, it I think that you're completely correct about uh the way that sort of more normy people are not really paying attention yet uh to this contest and uh and I think that most people just have some some vague awareness that Trump's running that DeSantis is running and that uh and that Chris Christie is running, of all people, <laughs> because uh, because those are the people who I think they know best. Um, he is
1: good at the media thing.
0: Yeah. Dan, you know, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, the only thing I'll add is, it, I think you're both basically right. The only thing I'll add is that there's a weird dynamic. You're talking about second and third choices for people, right? Like, going into this, I mean, we won't know until voters hit booths, but going into this, it's not just the case that DeSantis needs, it's a weird thing, because DeSantis needs one or both of those candidates out, but both of those candidates, Haley, Haley doesn't have any kind of shot. Let's just say that 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 Scott has an outside shot, but he actually needs DeSantis in because DeSantis is the guy. I guess you want to talk about Ramaswamy, but DeSantis is the guy that's keeping Trump below sixty. Is is, is the default assumption you have to make from just yep. looking at the dynamics of the race. So they actually need if this is going to be a plurality race. They need it they need it to be a three-way race and they need DeSantis to be the other guy. Um, because otherwise it certainly appears, you know, that you that you'd have an even bigger, you know, Trump Trump majority. Because there aren't a lot of other guys on that on that stage or gals on that stage who are trading votes with Trump as one and two. Um, and DeSantis is the guy. So it's it's an odd dynamic because if you're Tim Scott, you absolutely need to be you need Trump and DeSantis to split to split the field. I think. Yeah. Maybe there's other paths through the through the swamp, but, um, that, that's the way it looks.
0: No, I think, I think you're completely right about that. Um, so let's, uh, let's finish up with this. The, um, there was this no labels event, uh, this week up in, uh, at St. Anselm. Um, and, uh, they, you know, all the, all the normal folks were there, you know, Joe Lieberman, um, you know, uh, John Huntsman was there and Joe Manchin was there. And of course, you know, there's this this whole kind of speculation game. Uh, Brett Baer talked to him on Special Report this week. Uh, and obviously, you know, Manchin is someone who likes to keep his cards close to his chest till the last minute uh, to make a lot of decisions. Uh, he doesn't have to file to run for re-election in West Virginia for the Senate uh, until January. Uh, and so it's all kind of a, a will he or won't he game until then. There's been a number of articles written around this, particularly in the wake of a poll that came out, which was meant uh, or intended to send the message that uh, because it was organized by Dick Epparton and and his whole group that is fighting back against uh, the the idea of a no labels third party candidacy. um, There was this idea that it was supposed to reveal that it was not uh, uh, that they had no hope of sort of uh, making it a a real race if they got in, but instead, uh, the no labels people were basically able to spin it as actually, you know, we get like 20 plus points, you know, right off the bat without a candidate. Um, if, and so I think that, you know, the thing that is very present on people's minds is if it's Trump Biden and then there's a third Democrats assume it's going to hurt them, uh, because they think Trump voters will be more loyal. Uh, and, uh, so they're going to be fighting them on ballot access and things like that. Um, You also have sort of the weirdness of, you know, a a Green Party candidate in Cornell West, who is, you know, sort of a a media figure and and could potentially also be a spoiler. How risky is the spoil factor there if Manchin does choose to take the leap? Uh, And if he doesn't, is that just a non-factor?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I continue to believe that third parties... It goes beyond just the way Americans think about politics. The two-party system is written into election law. It's written into institutions. It's written into, certainly into fundraising, ballot access, all that stuff. I just think it's such a tough hurdle to overcome. I think if you were to, if you had some sort of Napoleon come through and blow the entire system up and then you came out the other side and it was a free-for-all, yes, I think third parties you know, could kick ass and win elections and do all kinds of, and fourth parties for that matter. But there's just so much path dependence and you kind of saw the high watermark, I think, with the pro stuff. And, and um, I, I just don't know, I don't know if you're ever going to see anything like that again, unless it's really the perfect candidate. I mean, Manchin, you know, does he have enough of a national profile? Is he compelling enough on stage? I actually think Cornell West is, if he's going to get into a general election debate is going to be, interesting to watch whatever you think about him he's a brilliant guy um really smart guy and and not the kind of um i don't know marxist caricature that i think um maybe a shallow understanding of him would 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 convey um he's certainly a marxist after a fashion uh but um you know sort of academic but has a lot of interesting thoughts about stuff i remember you know they used to run the um the the gathering in dc every year i think it's called like i don't think i'm making this up it's called like the state of black america or something that west Mm -hmm. was always at they would run it on c-span just one of the most fascinating things to watch just like all of these african-american like public intellectuals and civic leaders and stuff getting together it was everyone from cornell west to farrakhan and west always like you ever see him talk and i've seen him give you know academic talks and stuff he's a brilliant guy and he could, he could do very well on a debate stage and he could reframe things and he's, and he, and he knows how to frame things and be emotionally compelling and all that stuff. So anyway, he, he could be interesting on a debate stage. I don't know about, um, Manchin in terms of like changing the dynamic of the race. Uh, I think people will vote strategically and they'll see that, you know, the kind, let me put it this way. The kind of person who would vote for Joe Manchin is kind of a person who wants a normie, um, sort of outcome, sort of centrist outcome, which there's, tons of, but those people are also strategic voters. Um and they're not necessarily going to vote for a guy who's not going to win and and play spoiler. You know, spoiler voters are Green Party voters, you know, because they DGAF.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, the uh the other thing that's interesting about uh about West, of course, is that he's actually defended uh including in the in the most recently I believe in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, uh the the idea of a classical canon. Uh, as being uh, you know essential he defended DeSantis on that point um you know he's pro-classical education um and that makes him kind of an anti like you know we must destroy the the dead white men kind of of uh you know a thinker um and he obviously travels the country with um uh with Robbie George uh and does these different things I saw them both actually most recently in in Chautauqua uh and uh, they you know do these talks together about uh, they're, they're. Intellectual disagreement, but also friendship. So, so Ben, are
2: you saying that we need to arm the the moderate Marxists?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I will just point out many of the most uh, strongest critiques of the 1619 project came from that world like world socialist yeah. network, you know, sort of <laughs> site. So, so I'm not saying arm the moderate Marxists, uh, but maybe just you know they, they're interesting. <laughs> let's let's yeah, bring let's... on the
1: bring on the dirtbag left. Bring on the old left. I mean, I'll take those guys. So- Seven days a week and twice on sunday i also think <laughs> cornell west i believe is a believing christian so he's yeah, interesting in that sure. respect. To- i, I um, think
2: just the just the quickly on the i think with the third party thing the the it all presumes i think you need to have it be trump versus biden otherwise it's it's a completely moot point i just think the national dynamic makes it hard but in some way you could kind of squint and again if it's mansion at the top of the ticket that it kind of becomes like an Arizona Senate race where you've got Gallego. Again, this presumes that Carrie Lake would be the Republican nominee. And if you're just like kind of a normal person and you feel like pretty okay about Kirsten Cinema, and you look at Gallego and Carrie Lake, and I don't know if I want that. You know, this is Mansion, and I don't know that he is as interesting or as savvy as as Cinema is because I think she's actually one of the most talented people in American politics right now, and you know. Maybe that will be per undoing. Uh, Manchin certainly is somebody who has been able to play his state like an absolute maestro. Uh, and you have to, you have to respect that. He's, you know, is a formidable politician in his own state. I don't know that, that translates as well as cinema, uh, but he would probably be, I mean, the most credible third-party candidate, again, depending on if no labels had ballot access and enough states to even have a pathway. Uh, but I tend to agree with, with you two, that you know, this is a, this is a two-party country and when other parties of any meaningfulness you know arise they are sucked into one or the other at some point
0: i just think that it would be a it would be a crazy result of the Manchinema uh uh alliance if they actually ended up on a ticket together (laughs) that would just be a wonderful wonderful way for that uh uh that uh unity that put everybody in Washington's hair on fire to to draw to a conclusion. So uh for Dan and John, this has been another week of Thunderdome. You can go to thespectator.com uh to sign up for all of our different uh emails and newsletters. I encourage you to do so and to subscribe uh, to the magazine. Uh and thank you so much for listening.